we've been in the middle of a series uh, uh, called Let the Games Begin, and it's a relationship series talking about the dynamics that we have with people that we are in relationship with. And uh, we kicked off the series a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the different games we play. And here's the problem with playing games in relationships, is that games instinctively have a winner and a... Yes. And when it comes to relationships, if you're in a relationship with someone, you've won. You've already won the game. You don't have to compete anymore. You're in relationship with them. And so trying to win beyond that creates tension in the relationship. And now some games are fun and great. And I know some of you have great family game days. And uh, some of you try to do family games and it ends in war. Uh, and that's uh, telling about your personality also. And I shared some of our family uh, games and wars that we've done. But I wanted to recap just really quickly with you what we've been through in the last couple of weeks. Because we started with the change game. Talking about how no one likes to be in a relationship with someone when you know they're trying to change you. And you feel the pressure of that. And how sometimes we're so desperate to be right that we just want someone to agree with us whether they like it or not. And we had this incredible tension out of Romans 14 of Paul writing to believers that are all going to heaven but living with some different values right now. And the tension of two people having a different opinion and both being right. And so we lived in that tension. And then last week, we dove into the blame game. Now, I got to be honest with you. My kids have had so much fun shouting blame game at each other all week long. Whenever one of them tries to pawn off the responsibility, I had no idea how much blame game was going on in my house until I have heard my kids yelling blame game. And you might not know this about our church, especially if you don't have kids upstairs. If you do, you probably know this and hopefully you love it as much as I love it. But our kids upstairs, we do something here called a big idea. And so every Sunday, our kids upstairs are learning a version of what we're learning down here. Unless, like this week, I throw everything out and change it on Saturday and mess the kids programming up, they will be always aligned with what we are uh, doing down here. And the reason is, I think it's just such a cool thing that you get into the car with your kids after church and you can have conversations, come on now, about what you learned on in church on Sunday. So if, if we were talking about Jonah down here and you got into the car with your child and said, what'd you get from church today? And they'd be like, I don't know because that's what kids do, right? And you say, come on, what did you learn? Oh, something about a whale. Oh, I learned something about fish too. Did you learn about Jonah? Yeah, I learned about Jonah. And then conversations taken from this place come on into your home have the power to transform lives. Part of why rooted in small groups and things like that are so impactful and important too, because when we start doing life together like that, it has the power to change and transform our lives. And so uh, I just have to say this now because I'm uh, being transparent. I have been so hard on our teams the last couple of weeks trying to hear from God and making moves. And our team has been so flexible, whether it's been our worship team adding music, our tech team adding slides and verses, our kids team having to, uh, having to flex. All of them swirl around this storm that is Pastor Mike doing all of these things and they do it with grace and they do it uh, 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 with so much compassion and so much love. I don't know if you had a chance uh, in, the, in the past couple of weeks to just thank one of the people who you see serving, but please take time to do that. I wanna do that. We have incredible teams here. Now that wasn't the greatest pitch for you guys to get involved. Uh, usually it's much cleaner than that uh, and, and, uh, and it's a lot of fun, but, uh, but if you aren't involved, we'd love for you to, to plug in and use your gifts as well. So in my house, we've been joking about the blame game. 
And it keeps coming up whenever someone kind of shucks the responsibility and doesn't take their piece of the responsibility first. That's the blame game. And today, we are closing up the series on Let the Games Begin, talking about the mind game. And you've been in a relationship with someone who plays mind games, and you don't like it. You see, the mind game is the battle for your mind. And when someone plays mind games with you, they are trying to get you to move to their position without being honest and upfront about what they're trying to do. They're trying to move you to their position, to agreement with them. It's a battle for your mind. And I got to be honest with you, the scriptures tell us time and time again that we are in a constant battle for our mind. For what we think about things and how we process information, there is a constant battle that we are in for our mind. In fact, I love the way Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10. He says, the weapons that we fight for, fight with, are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you haven't read the next verse that says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and listen to this, and we take captive every thought. Look at someone and say, every thought. Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul says part of our mission as followers of Jesus is that we are constantly having to guard and engage our mind. We don't always have a physical fight in front of us. We often have a mental fight in front of us. We have to battle and challenge ourselves to just not let our minds go there. Some of the worst relational disasters I've ever seen happened completely in one person's mind. And you know this, you've sat down with friends who have rendered their friendship and have a conversation with them only to find out that most of the information they're working off was just how they interpreted something in their mind. They didn't have all the facts. You know what has been a notorious tool for this to happen in our generation? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about the difference between some of the TV shows I watched as like a a high schooler and a young adult and some of the TV shows today and how a lot of them don't translate anymore. And I realized the primary reason they don't translate anymore is because people didn't communicate the same way just 20 years ago. You had to actually go see someone or you had to write a letter and send it to them, or you had to get on a phone that was connected to a wall and walk around the corner with your bendy cord and sit on the ground and tell your parents to leave you alone while they're shouting at you to get off their phone and stop jamming up their line, or it would click and you'd have to try to decide if you were gonna click over without knowing who it was, and then it was gonna be your grandma and she was gonna talk your ear off, and you didn't have any warning that that was gonna happen, come on. Communication has changed so much in this last window, 15, 20 years, and the primary culprit has been this guy. And suddenly, we communicate in ways we never communicated before, and we shoot little short messages and pictures to each other that are supposed to be communication. And the problem is that communication is often open to interpretation. And so we send little messages to each other and we don't know how to read those messages. You send a message that goes a little something like this. Hey, my mom's coming over to dinner tonight. And your wife texts you back the letter K. What have you just communicated? 
I'm happy, I'm sad, I got the information, I'm ticked, I'm emotional, you're gonna pay for this later, thanks for the short warning. Like, there's so much information in there that we're left to interpret to ourselves. And suddenly the mind game begins. Suddenly I start processing, how do I think, oh man, am I in trouble? Better pick up flowers. Maybe you better offer to order something and bring it. Maybe I better call and cancel the whole thing. I don't know what information to work with. Suddenly our communication gets very, very sketchy. We're not actually talking anymore and we don't really know what we mean by what we say. We're left to interpret it and then all of the communication is actually happening in our own mind and not with the person. You see, every communication has a sender and a receiver. A sender and a receiver. And psychology will give you a bunch of different examples of how to illustrate this. Kind of like throwing a ball to someone is communication. I have information and I throw it over to you. Now you have the information. That's one way. Sometimes people say communication hasn't happened until you've looked at that ball and thrown it back over to me. And now we're kind of getting on the same page. But all communication has a sender and a receiver. And let me be honest, both the senders and the receivers can play mind games. But if I start breaking that all out, we're going to be here until Easter, so we're going to focus on one side of the communication. We're going to focus on the receiver. We're going to focus on what goes on in your mind as you process information in a relationship. Now, some of you, can I just give a little, some of you are horrific mind game players as the sender, and you know exactly what you're doing when you type K and send it over to somebody, right? Short version, knock it off. That's a sermon for another day. Knock it off is the answer, all right? Hashtag Jesus says knock it off. All right. <laughs> oh, that's a message for another day. But all communication has a sender and a receiver. Now, here's the dangerous thing. As we receive information, we have this thing called a mind. And our minds do things on their own. They process information. They try to jump to the conclusion. You know this. You've been in a conversation with someone and they're talking and they haven't even finished what they're saying yet, but you've concluded what they're saying in your mind and have already begun to prepare your response. Our minds are these beautiful, amazing things. They cut quarters. They jump to conclusions. They gather data and make snap judgments and they're dangerously attached to our mouth and information comes shooting back out of us depending on how we've processed that information in our mind. Let me just convince you for a moment that our minds are not always as trustworthy as we think they are. I'm gonna have us do a little uh, experiment today. I would like for you guys to read this out loud with me. It's just a typical sign. I want you to take a look at it. What does that say up there? Read it for me, out loud. All right, take that down. I think there's a few of you who got that right. And there's an overwhelming amount of you didn't get it right. You didn't get it right. You didn't read what you thought you read. Let's show it to you one more time. Let's read it again. What does it say? Read it loud. Oh, let's read it one more time out loud all together. Ready? One, two, three. New York in the, the spring. Oh, See, your brains just naturally completed the sentence before all the information got in. That's just a fun little psychology thing to prove a very simple point. Our brains instinctively jump to the end. 
We instinctively look for patterns and we put them together and we make a conclusion based on the information as we've seen it. And sometimes, come on now, that mind game puts us in a very difficult place. Sometimes it causes us to jump to unhealthy, unwise, untrue conclusions. Our minds play tricks on us. That's why the mind game that we're talking about today is so important. I heard uh, this quote, you've heard this before. Someone once said, I could figure out who it's attributed to, but that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% what you think about what happens to you. And I don't know if the statistics are right, but the principle is true. The majority of your life is not what happens to you. It's how you feel and think about what happens to you. It's what you do with that information. The majority of your life happens and is controlled by winning or losing the mind game. I've seen this happen, can I be honest, in churches all the time. People coming to conclusions. That person doesn't like me. That person doesn't think I'm good at this. <laughs> I can't, where's, where's some of my worship team members at? I can't even get involved in worship team stuff sometimes because I don't speak the artist language. And I have such a hard time when someone's like, oh, they don't think I'm very good. And I'm like, I don't know if you're good. I can't help you with that emotional thing you're having. Have you actually talked to them? Well, no. You haven't talked to them, but you've made a conclusion about what they think about you. Well, yes. Okay. That's a dangerous mind game that you're playing. How come you feel that way? Well, because I asked a question and they were doing something else and they didn't stop what they were doing and look at me and answer my question. But it's happened before. It's like, maybe your problem is your communication style. But we see all the time people playing mind games. Jumping to conclusions, I've sat down with couples, I've sat down with friends, I've sat down with coworkers, I've sat down with people who are just acquaintances and listened to them tell different versions of the same story, having jumped to completely, come on now, different conclusions. The funnest ones are when you're talking to someone and you find out they're horribly offended and you talk to the other person and they're completely unaware. They had no intention of offending anybody. They were stuck in their own world thinking about their own things and didn't even realize that your world was affected. But you've made an entire conversation up in your head about them. Driving home, you said all the things you wish you said in that moment and you've got yourself all emotionally charged up. You went to bed thinking about that conversation and how it should have went different and that person's oblivious. They don't even know there was a conversation that they had or missed. And you don't know their story and what they've been going through and where their world's at. See, the mind game is all about how we process the information on our side and what we let get into us. So I'm going to ask you a question, and it's going to kind of frame our conversation. And the conversation is just going to be about this. Do you even want to think differently? Do you want to think differently? Because you're going to have to answer this in order to win the mind game. Right now, some of you are a little defensive because I just framed it in a way that's like, you got to do something. That's okay, we're gonna wrestle with that a little bit today. Do you really wanna think differently? Do you wanna win the mind game or not? If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna be in John chapter five. It'd be awesome if you got your Bibles out today because there's gonna be some stuff in there that you might wanna see it in your own Bible to believe it. If you don't have a Bible with you and you usually use a digital Bible, get your digital Bible out if you have it. If your only Bible is the Bible I put on the screen, guess what, I'll put it on the screen for you. I'll hook you up. But I'm in John chapter 5. 
And Jesus is about to interact with somebody. He's going to ask him an incredibly profound question. And it's going to kind of resonate with the question that I just asked you about, do you even want to think differently? In John chapter 5, we see the story of Jesus, and he's in Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Verse 1, it says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, what's interesting is John usually tells us what feast he's talking about. At this time, he doesn't tell us what feast it is. Bless you. Um, usually, there's three feasts that a Jewish male would come to Jerusalem for. This is probably the Feast of the Tabernacles, but John isn't completely clear of what that is. Here's what's important about knowing that it's feast time. It means the city's packed. It means people from the outlying communities, if they're able to get there, they come. It's celebration time. The fair's in town. And Jesus shows up. And he's somewhat of a rock star by this time. There's a following of him. People know who he is. And he's wading through the crowds. And he's interacting at this feast. And it says, now there's in Jerusalem, uh, near Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, near, oh, oh my goodness, if I could read. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool. There we go. Antioch education coming through there. I bury him. Which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, some versions will say Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, this is pretty cool. I actually got to go here uh, almost a year ago today in May. I got to go here. And this is, I didn't take this picture. I'll show you a couple pictures I took. I didn't have a good picture of the gate, but this is the sheep gate, what they call the sheep gate. And, uh, and so in the wall of Jerusalem, outside of the city, this is where they would have brought in the animals for the slaughter, okay? And you think, why would they need a whole gate called the sheep gate? Well, if you go all the way back to 2 Chronicles 7 and see when uh, 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 they made and dedicated the temple, there was quite a bit of sacrificing going on at the temple. As a matter of fact, in one big event, when the temple was completed, the scriptures tell us 120 thousand sheep and goats were part of the sacrifice. Now, I don't know if you know what 120,000 sheep and goats probably look and smell like, but you want a specific gate where that's happening and you don't want it by the people gate, right? You want a sheep gate where the animals and the livestock are coming in and getting access to the temple and getting up to where they are making the sacrifices. And so, so that's how the sheep gate came to be. When, they, uh, when the walls came down and got re, uh, refixed and down and fixed, they'd always restored and rebuilt the sheep gate. Nehemiah took care of it. Everybody took care of it because they understood that part of temple life was sacrifice. And if there's going to be sacrifice, it's going to be messy. And if it's going to be messy, we got to filter the mess in, okay? So Jesus is walking around the sheep gate. And as he gets past the sheep gate, he gets through a place called Bethesda. And he says it's surrounded by five color colonnades, covered colonnades. So covered area, like, come on, you've been to like a, an outdoor pool and they have like the little cabana areas and everybody fights to get in the covered area. And then there's some areas where you pay and there's some nicer. This is the desert. There's a little pool of water, but there are some areas that are covered, shaded areas. Now, this is a fascinating thing just throughout history. If it was maybe 40, 50 years ago, and we were talking about the pool of Bethesda, some of, you, some of us would have heard as part of kind of biblical literary criticism that Jerusalem does have no such place. There's no pool of Bethsaida. There's no pool of Bethesda. They've never found one. There's no such place. And for years and years and years and years and years, one of the criticisms of scripture was that here's this whole story and there's no place like that that actually exists. And then about 50 years ago, they found the place. 
It's amazing it's right by the sheep gate. Kind of funny how that works out. So you walk in through the sheep gate, and here's a picture that I took. There's a, uh, 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 there's a uh, what do you call it, where people come and worship, a temp, not a temple, a, no, not an altar, but it's an enclosed area. C- little cathedral thing. There's a little cathedral thing right here. <laughs> and we went in there and we sang a worship song because it had cool. It was like the, oh, it was like that, like where you could chant in there. It was pretty cool. And we sang, I love you, Lord. It was pretty awesome. And then you walk out and this is the area where the covered colonnades would have been. And then down right through here at the bottom, you keep going down and eventually you find there's a bubbling pool of water down there. Now this is beautiful. So you go in and this is me down there where the water is and I'm ticked off because there's garbage in it because tourists Hashtag the worst, right? But you walk all the way down. I actually took a video of me walking down there and I was gonna show it to you guys and it just turned out so bad. It was like choppy and I'm not paying attention well enough and I'm talking to you guys and I was really excited to use it someday and when I viewed it, it was just trash. So maybe I'll put it online and you can look at it and see it, how embarrassing it is. But, but anyways, but you get down there and I'm, I'm telling you when you're in the desert and there's places where there's water, it's significant. And so here's Jesus and he walks in through the sheep gate And he comes to this place called Bethesda, and it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. Verse three, look what happens here. It says, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So what would happen is this area where there was a pool of water, it was like a natural hot springs. And they would bring their invalid there. They would bring their blind, their lame, the sick, the paralyzed, and they would bring them there and they would leave them there during the day. And on an average day, historians figure, there's probably about 300 people that would be just surrounding this hot springs under these five covered colonnades left there during the day. But it's festival time, which means it probably would have swelled to closer to 3,000 people at this point. So there's literally thousands of people surrounding these pools of water Why are they there? Now, this isn't a fascinating thing. If you have your Bibles, I just want you to look and see if you have a verse four or not. So if you have like a New King James or an NASB, you probably have a verse four. If you have a NIV or an ESV, you don't have a verse four. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Let me show you what verse four says from the King James Version. It says, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped into the, in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, most versions have, later versions have removed this, recognizing that the oldest documents didn't have this anecdote about the water. So at some point, historically, we believe someone said, it's gonna be important to capture the, uh, the, the uh, thinking behind why these people did leave their lame, their blind, and their sick there, and probably amended that. And it got into some early versions in 1600. Um, when King James put the scripture together and it maintained through some of those things. As we went to the oldest documents, we recognized, okay, this was probably an addendum that someone put in that somehow worked its way into that narrative. Here's what's awesome. It's true because in the next couple verses, we're gonna see the guy explain, that's what I'm doing here. So it doesn't change the narrative of the story at all, but, uh, but it's just an interesting anecdote that, that that's what the historically we believe why they were there. A superstition had arose, because of the bubbling hot springs. Now listen, medical science has come a long, long way since Jesus' time. 
and a, a place where a natural hot spring existed probably had some therapeutic properties for people who were sick and achy and not feeling so great. And sitting in a hot tub is a good thing, and they didn't have hot tubs. And so there probably was some therapeutic just in the natural things to getting into this hot water that was therapeutic and helpful and restorative for some people. And because I just believe God is big and operates when people have faith, there probably were some people who got into the water believing that that water could help and heal them. And God in his mercy and his grace and his compassion absolutely healed some people. Whatever the case may be, there was a longstanding tradition that because of this pool of water, it would bubble from time to time because of the natural hot spring nature of it. And the tradition became, if you got in first, so a bubble would come up, and then someone would be like, yes, they jump in. First one in gets the miracle. That was the belief. 300 or so people there every day, blind, lame, paralyzed. Maybe the water bubbles, maybe it doesn't. First one in, blessed. Everyone else, sorry, not your day. Jesus walks down to this pool and it's probably overcrowded beyond what is normally there. He's aware of the tradition. He's aware of the belief that's there. Somehow, he begins walking through these people and this is, this is one of the craziest pictures of Jesus. I can imagine Jesus hiking up his robe a little bit. He's stepping through the crowds. This guy's sick, this guy's sick. This gal's sick, this person's blind, this person's lame. He's walking through the crowds and he's looking for one person. It's a fascinating story. He gets to that person. It says, one who had been there and been an invalid for 38 years. Now, think about what you were doing 38 years ago. Some of you were just a spark in somebody's eye. Some of you were learning to walk. Some of you were my age. 38 years ago, depending on how old you are, that's a length of time. I think all of us would agree 38 years is a pretty significant length of time. It's not five years ago. It's not three. It's not eight years ago. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, far be it from me to criticize Jesus. That's not my job. I'm just articulating the story as it goes. There's normally hundreds. Today, there's thousands. He's walking through the crowd. They're all sick. He walks right up to one guy who has been in this condition for 38 years. He's like, hey, how's that working out for you? You want to not be in this situation? You want to get well? And my first instinct was, this is a cruel question. This is just me in the natural in the flesh reading this. I'm like, Jesus, that's messed up. How could you? That's like a slap in the face. And then imagine all the people nearby who could hear being like, are you serious? Of course you want to get well. But the reality is, it's an incredible question. It's not cruel to ask. Everybody is there. And he walks up to one guy and he says, bro, do you want this? Do you want to get well? You see, everything hinges on our reply to this question. Do we want to get well? Have we gotten so comfortable, so used to this position? Is this our new reality and the only reality and we're content with the reality that we're in? Or do you want to get well? Look at his response. Verse seven, sir, 
The invalid man replied, I love this. It's like his mouth just goes, blah, blah, blah. I got no one to help me get into the pool. And when the water is stirred and when I'm trying to get in and then someone else goes down there and gets in ahead of me. I think he's about that frantic. I probably have an emotional outburst if someone walked up to me. I was in a place where I had positioned myself. Why? So that I could get into the pool so that I could get healthy. I can get better. I could be restored. And someone walked up to me and goes, hey, do you want to get well? I'd be like, dude. Yes, I want to get well, but here's all the reasons why I can't get well. I can't move. I'm not close enough. I see the water bubble, but someone gets in ahead of me. Here's all the reasons why I can't not do it. Let me just be clear. Nobody's helping me. And then we look at our lives and Jesus shows up. He says, Jeff, do you want to get well? Why doesn't this guy just say yes? He doesn't say yes. He starts giving all of the things in his mind that are the reason why he can't get well. This guy's been losing the mind game for a long, long time. Well, I can't get well because nobody's helping me. I can't get well because when the water bubbles up, I can't move. I can't get well because, come on now. And you've talked with someone. I've talked with someone. They're walking through it right now. And you're saying, hey, how you don't. You don't have to do this. Yeah, I have to do this. I have to do this because this person said this and this person did that. And here's all the reasons. We're just all addicts in our family. We all drink too much in our family. We all have this problem in our family. That's just how I was raised. I was just around this my whole life and that's why it's in me. Here's all the reasons for 38 years. Why? And Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he's like, here's the laundry list of, let me unload why I'm not well. Well, Jesus isn't having that, so he takes the lead, verse eight. He goes, all right. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Whoo! Three power statements. Get up, pick up your mat, go somewhere. Now, I was reading this, studying this, looking at it over and over and again, and I was like, I like get up and walk. But pick up your mat is gross. I'm just visual 38 years this guy's been hanging out here with nobody helping him. <laughs> I've done some hospice care, taking care of some invalid people for short periods of time. Like three to six hours and that bed could be not impressive. They didn't have the sanitary things that we have, okay? Do I have to keep explaining or should... Thumbs up if you want me to go a little further. Thumbs down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a couple go a little bit further, right? <laughs> I just want you to breathe in what 300 and now 3,000 sick people piled around a hot spring in the desert smell like. And he's got a mat or a bed that he's been laying on day after day after day. And Jesus says, get up, pick that thing up and go. If it's me, I'm like, bro, I'm up. That's awesome. Can we leave this piece? That's a memory of what I don't like. There's some history, me and that bed and that mat, but I'll go. That'll be my instinct. Then I started thinking about it a little bit more and I was like, okay, maybe the thinking would have been, there's like a recipe, right? And obedience is critical for the recipe. So I have to get up, I have to take my mat and then I can go. I don't know what triggered it, but at some point he recognized and said, okay, that's a good plan because I'm up. After 38 years, if I'm up, 
I decided after reading this, you could ask me to carry anything. <laughs> you can ask me, to, if after 38 years I'm getting free, okay, fine, Jesus. You want me to pick it up? I'll pick it up. And it becomes incredibly important that he picks it up because it changes the narrative of what happens next. So the reality is, if I can get up and walk, Jesus, you can ask me for whatever. Hmm. Jesus, if you're gonna help me get free, I'm in. If you're gonna break me out of this cycle and where I've been stuck, if you're gonna overcome my excuses and my story's gonna change, I'm in. What you got for me? I'm in. So he's in. Verse nine, it says, at once, amazing, the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. So he did it. It says the day that this took place was a Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, um, excuse me, it's the Sabbath, and the law forbids you carrying your mat. <laughs> Verse 10. Excuse me, it's the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, the law is a crazy thing. The law of the Sabbath is such a confusing thing throughout Scripture to really nail down because we have all these added things, right? The basic principle of the Sabbath, when you read through kind of Leviticus and, and Moses explaining the Sabbath, essentially he's saying you have daily work that you do. We're an agricultural community. And you, so you farm and you work and you sun up to sundown so that you can live and have food. You're in desert places and you're going into a new place. And it's going to be very critical that the agriculture supports you. And you're going to have to learn to rest and not do that work and enjoy your time with God and enjoy your community and do that. That's the principle of the Sabbath in a nutshell. But because people became very nervous about violating the Sabbath, over the centuries, they started trying to really define, well, this what exactly is and isn't work? And at some point, they got to the point where you weren't supposed to carry more than the weight of two figs or else you were working. At some point, there was a tension over if you watered your plants at all and kept just your normal house plants alive. At some point, there was a tension literally that if you walked outside on grass and you crushed the grass, that that was like agricultural work. I'm just telling you, it got bizarre. And so here's this culture who looks at this man and he's carrying, I mean, essentially a piece of cardboard a mat that he's been laying on. And for 38 years, he's been stuck and nobody's helping him. And Jesus walks up. And I don't know if you caught this. He didn't know Jesus's name. He called him sir. It's the only time in scripture he's called sir. He doesn't say Lord, teacher, rabbi. He doesn't know who this guy is. He got no time for that. He's stuck here by the, well, by the water. He's not getting newsflash updates. He's not checking his Twitter feed and getting, you know, Instagram pictures of Jesus so he knows who he is. Just a guy walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? Pick up your mat, go. He's like, peace. He's stepping over the crowd that he, that has amassed around him. And some people see him carrying his mat and they're like, put that down. He's like, I'm healed. They're like, you're working. He's like, I'm healed. They're like, wrong day for that. Wrong day. How can it be the wrong day for God to deliver me, heal me, restore me? He said, pick up my mat and go. So I'm picking up my mat and going. And I don't know about you, but you would have to tackle me to the ground to get me to put that mat down. Having come to the conclusion that getting up, picking my mat up and going is healing me. 
is the reason I've been healed. So he ain't having it. Verse 11. But he replied, the man, see, he doesn't know who it is, who made me well, said, pick up your mat and walk. He's like, dude, the guy told me to do it. I'm doing it. Verse 12. So they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed, he had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. There's thousands. He's not a Christian. I love this. He's not even a believer in Jesus. He has no clue who Jesus is. Jesus walked over people to get to this guy, healed him, said, get up and go. And he has no relationship with Jesus at this point whatsoever. Doesn't even know who he is. What an incredible picture of Jesus coming for us first. Jesus taking the lead. He's not a Christian. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him where? At the temple. This guy hasn't been able to go to temple his whole life. He's crippled. The hub of their community and their culture happens at the temple. It's a festival. The temple is a good time. He's never been there or hasn't been there for 38 years at least. He goes to the temple. Jesus sees him there and he goes, hey, see, you're well again. And listen to what he says. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus is on fire in this story. He's on fire in this story. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying because of your sin, you were crippled. Because of your sin, you were stuck. You were enslaved. He's not saying any of those things. He's simply saying your heart, your life, the direction of your life can be a lot worse than 38 years sitting on a mat. That could look like paradise compared to what happens if you don't step out in trust and faith with me and cut that stuff out of your life. You know that whole thing where you couldn't answer me when I said, do you want to get up? And you went to a blame game and you went to excuses and you had believed lies. That whole thing that, 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 that was there in between you and me at that point, that's the thing that's going to cause you to have a worse experience than sitting on the mat for 38 years. So knock that off or it might actually get worse. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And from this point on, John begins to talk about how the Pharisees kind of go after him. They try to snatch him up. They try to ensnare him with tricks and word games and they try to get him to say something and if, if you've been with us for a while you know it's not until Lazarus that they finally get the full support to go after him and put him down but this whole idea now I mean I'm not gonna have time somehow though there's a whole sermon there about religious people frustrated that God doesn't work the way they think he should and making a decision to reject, if it doesn't fit their narrative, the fact that this is for people, God's word is for people, that God is for people, that his great love is people. And we get stuck saying, well, I know God loves people, but he doesn't love them on Saturday if they pick up their mat. Is absurd, is absurd. But we won't go there, we don't have time. Mind game. If you're stuck in that mind game, whoo, we'll get there. Let me fast forward. It's an incredible story. Jesus is interacting with someone who doesn't even know who he is. And God in his kindness goes right to this place where he's stuck saying, here's all the reasons why I can't get free. Here's all the reasons why I can't get healed. Here's all the reasons why I'm stuck. And Jesus says, why don't you get up your mat and go? He's like, whoo. 
when it comes to the mind game. I wonder if you want it. The question he asked him, do you want to get well, is the catalyst for all of this. Can you imagine that? So let's ask a couple questions. Why do I lose the mind game? Why do I lose the mind game? Sometimes I'm losing. Let me give you a couple reasons why we lose the mind game. Number one, it takes work to think differently. It takes work. To, you know what doesn't take any work? I've never been with someone and they're like, you know what, I'm in a really good mood today and I just believe in awesome things are gonna happen today. So I'm gonna go for a walk and I'm gonna work myself into a negative place and when I get there, I'll be ready to come in and deal with, right? I never see anyone saying, man, I just, my faith in God is strong right now, my hope in what he can do, my belief in people, I'm just, I'm in a good place. So I'm gonna take a little time right now and just kind of dial that back because I'm gonna, no one has to do that, right? But you know what does take work? Whoo, the other side, I make a decision, I get up and I didn't even think about it and I'm already, man, this is gonna go wrong today. That person's not gonna be prepared when I get there. That coworker is gonna be late, I just know it. That person's not gonna have the thing ready that I want them to have. The person I'm doing a project with at school isn't gonna hold their weight. That person that was supposed to call me yesterday or was late, like you start, that narrative of negativity gets in us and it takes work to make a decision to say, oh, time out, time out, time out, time out. This is an attack on my mind. I'm gonna have to make a decision to say, God, I'm not gonna be captive to these thoughts. Remember the first verse we started over? I understand I'm in a battle here. It's not a physical battle. It's gonna take some work. It takes work to think differently. So I lose the mind game because I don't wanna do the work. The second thing is this, it involves risk. It involves risk. If I'm gonna win the mind game, I'm gonna to have to be willing to risk. When I lose the mind game, it's because I don't wanna risk. I don't wanna have a hard conversation to clarify. Monica sent me a text and I'm like, mm, I'm just not gonna respond. Because if I go there, then I might get all her feelings and then her feelings are gonna come out. I'm gonna have to deal with those feelings. I don't want that risk. I might, it might actually validate what I think in my head and right now I have plausible deniability. So I can just say, I don't really know how she feels but I'll have a whole narrative in my head of how I think she feels because she texted me a letter K. It involves risk. If I believe the best in you, what if you let me down? It's risky. It's risky. It's easier to just assume the worst and then deal with, hey, you exceeded my expectations by a little, great. It's risky to believe the best in someone. It's hard to do that. The other reason I lose the mind game is I lose hope. I just lose hope. 38 years this guy's been experiencing the same pattern. You don't understand, Pastor Mike. I can't talk to that person. I try to talk to him for years. Every Christmas they do the same thing. You don't understand... It's just the way they are. There's no hope. Every time I try to talk to them, same thing happens. I just lose hope. The Bible tells us that hope is the anchor for our soul. The Bible tells us that hope deferred makes our heart sick. You want to lose the mind game? Have a sick heart. Give up and abandon hope. So Jesus asked the question, do you want to get well. You're in here right now, you're thinking about a specific relationship and Jesus is saying, do you want to get well? You have to answer that. I can't answer that for you. 
I can't answer it for you. You're like, you don't understand the situation, Pastor Mike. Okay, but do you want to get well? I heard one pastor say it this way. When you lose hope, you lose everything. There's nothing left to lose after you've lost hope. When you lose hope, you lose everything. Some of you have been losing the mind game for a long time. And hope's just been deferred and dashed. Maybe it's not just in a relationship with a person. Maybe it's in a relationship with God. Maybe you've just felt like there's no more hope. There's nothing left for God to do with me. I'm stuck. I'm just going to be in this behavior, in this pattern, in this sin indefinitely for the rest of my life. When you lose hope, you lose everything. That's how you lose the mind game. I'm going to speed up a little bit because I want us to get to this landing zone. I'm going to tell you how to win the mind game. But Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, Paul writing to this hodgepodge group of churches. He's talking to them and explaining them how to worship. And he says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Look at verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, you're going to have to get your body under control. You're going to have to transform your mind. You're going to have to be made new. And I want you to catch something. This is how you win the mind game. You have to start by understanding that you realize that how you think is worship. You're like, oh, no, no, no. Worship is what Jeff's coming up here to play. Nope. Worship's so much more than that. And you may have never thought about this, but your thought life can be worship. Paul's saying, hey, this is a spiritual act of worship. The thoughts you let come in and out of your mind, you think that's only an audience of one? Not according to the word of God. He's with you in that place. When you go to negative, when you go to escapism, when you're losing the battle of your mind and not even fighting, Paul's saying that's not, that's not. For those of us that follow Jesus, that's not an okay surrender place. You've got to understand that your mind and the battle for your mind is worship. I think sometimes we think we can just retreat into our mind and not let God there. If you think you can retreat into your mind and not let God in, you're right. You can say, God, you have no permission. He knows what you're thinking, but you can say, God, you have no permission to deal with what I'm thinking about things. Because he's kind and loving and invites you to engage, he just asks, do you want to get well? Do you like that or do you want to get well? And the longer you run, 20 years, 5 years, 10 years, 38 years, the longer you'll stay sick. He says, do you want to get well? Do you realize how you think is worship? When you realize that how you think is worship, then you have to ask another question. You have to want to think differently. You have to want to think differently. Jesus asked the question again, do you want this? Here's the thing that blew my mind as I was thinking through this whole thing. God never plays any mind games with us. He never assumes the worst in us. He always assumed the best. He always believed and, and, and had hope for his creation, for his kids and loves us and gives us opportunity and chances. Even though he knows this is the unfathomable reality of an omnipotent God, even though he knows the end conclusions, he still gives us the opportunity to choose him. And he still loves us fully and completely. He doesn't play mind games with us. And he says, that's how we do it. That's the goal. 
You have to want to think differently. And the last thing is simply this. You have to take action. You have to actually get up when God says get up. You have to actually go when he says go. You got to grab your mat when he grabs and says grab your mat. He won't force you to do it, but he'll empower you to do it. But you got to do it. You got to make a decision. You got to say, you know what? I'm tired of losing the mind game. I'm tired of having this whole narrative in my head. All my relationships are, are toxified because I have this whole other reality in my head and it has nothing to do with what they actually said. It's everything to do with what I perceive. I have this whole reality in my head about how God thinks about me. I have this whole reality in my head about how I even think about myself. And God's like, okay, you're gonna have to take some action. You gotta get up, take your mat and go. He says, you can't stay there. It's taking an action to get you to that place. He's going to take another action to get you out of that place. He'll empower you for that action, but you've got to take the action. What are the actions? Let me give you two actions and then we'll be done. First one is simply this. You've got to choose to lead with love. You've got to choose in all your relationships to lead through those relationships the same way he leads. The lens, the filter, the, the entire narrative has to come through love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Near the end of that little passage, he, he, Paul writes this. He's talking about love. And he says, love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It goes on to say it never fails. And in our relationships with one another, that's the starting lens. That's the starting lens. I'm not going to delight in evil. I'm not going to sit back and think, hmm, I know what they're really doing. I know what they're really thinking. I know they were late. That means they don't care about me. They didn't respond to my text right away. They must have been doing something bad. I didn't get invited. Something happened, right? And you have this whole narrative in your head, and you're delighting in evil. This is my Dr. Evil. You're delighting in evil. He's like, that's not how we do it. We rejoice when we have truth. We always lead by protecting, trusting, hoping, we persevere. So the first thing is choose to lead with love. The next thing is you've got to feed your mind to change your mind. You've got to feed your mind to change your mind. The world knows this. It's bombarding you with images and information and data to change your mind. People are paying hundreds and millions of dollars to give you 30-second bombardments of information to try to change your mind to try to get you to think a different way, to try to get you to believe that the thoughts that they're having are your thoughts, to get you to agree and change, their change your mind. So you're gonna have to feed your mind to change your mind. You're gonna have to take some action. How do I renew my mind? How do I feed my mind? You've gotta bombard your mind with some truth. You've gotta bombard it with truth. You need truth bombs, boom, dropped into your mind. How do you get them? Well, I have a good starting point. If you aren't getting into the word of God, then you don't have, you're not accessing incredible, complete truth. Listen, I know my role in the kingdom is to take stories out of the scriptures and help them translate into your world. But all the time I have people asking me, man, I never read that before. I never saw that. I never caught that before. And that's awesome. And I'm happy because part of feeding your mind with truth is coming with the family and gathering and learning and growing together. But you should know these stories. You have access to them. All the time. My wife, she hears them all the time. Someone reads them straight to her. She doesn't even have to do the work of reading them. She just clicks play on her phone. Not me. I'm not sitting there going, hey, I'm following her around reading the Bible. That would be the worst. 
But she's just listening. Like James Earl Jones, I don't know who's reading it to her. Some big manly voice, or is it a British voice sometimes? I don't know. You have access to bombard your mind with truth. Jeff, as he opened the service, we talked about Rooted and we launched into these, these life communities where we're asking questions and getting together and, and diving into truth. Even just this morning, I had folks asking me questions. Like, oh man, we're reading the creation account. Let's talk about it some more. Feeding their mind truth. Life journaling, reading, writing what you're getting from the word. Coming to church, getting involved in a small group, getting some people around you who will sharpen you. Set up a Tuesday coffee with someone you trust and go to coffee with them and tell them what's going on in your life and let them speak some truth into your life. But you've got to make a decision to bombard your mind with truth because the world and the enemy is going to try to bombard it with lies. You've got to feed your mind to change your mind. You've got to own that peace. Would you stand with me? The reason that the religious folks of that time, and I'm making some leaps here, but the primary reason that those religious folks were, were so tense about Jesus healing on the Sabbath is they had missed some credible, incredible relational truth. So when Jesus is asked, what's the whole picture what does it boil down to? And he says, you got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, literally all of the law, all of the prophets, they hang on this truth. And what is he doing? He's recalibrating them to truth bombs. And he's saying, any information you have that doesn't come out through this lens, come on now, has become harmful and toxic. You got to feed your mind the right stuff. So here's what I'm going to do. I know we're out of time, but I just... I want to pray for some of you because I really believe that in this room today, there are some of you, as we've been talking about the mind game, it has been very, very painful for you to have some honest moments. And I got to pray for you before we get out of here and we want to do that. But my challenge is, is, is what is next for you then? How are you, going to do, how are you going to begin to bombard your mind with truth? Are you going to get into your word? Are you going to grab a journal, begin to read and write? Are you going to sign up? Like it's, it's tonight, I'll take you. If you come to Rooted tonight, I'll take you. I'll find a way to make it work. Are you going to make some time and get into prayer? Is it about getting connected to the body and coming to church, getting in a small group? Is there someone in the room that you need to catch and just say, can we go get a cup of coffee? I need to be sharpened. So God, in this moment, <laughs> oh, it hurts to be honest. It takes work. It requires something of us. But if we would get a hold of this, this mind game that we're playing that's paralyzing us, it's harming our relationships, even our relationship with you. And God, we've been making excuses and we have all the reasons why we can't. But you would ask us this morning, quite simply, straight from your word, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? So our answer kind of dictates where we go from here. For some of us, we're like, ah, some of us are like, oh God, help me, make me well. To which you reply, okay, get up, <laughs> knock it off, pick up your mat, let's go. So from this place, there's some things that we have to change. We're gonna have to make some decisions. We're gonna have to decide to lead with love. And some of those broken relationships, again, it's not lead with no boundaries, but it's lead with love. Just the same way you did towards us while we were still your enemies, according to the scripture. 
We were still in animosity towards you, battling towards you, fighting towards you. You led with love, and so you call us to do that. And where we need to take action, begin to make a decision to saturate our mind. We've never lived in a time where there was more access to more truth. And so we say, okay, we're going to make a decision. And can you imagine if something started in this room where a, a small group of people like this made a decision to trust you and to think differently and to not start from a position of anger, frustration, hurt, or pain, but to really believe the best in others and really believe that the God of the universe who so loved us loves them too, how that would change every relationship we're in and freedom would happen, even our relationship with you. So do it, have your way in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.